last week, we, uh, we looked at a passage of Scripture out of um, Isaiah, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. And the Scripture was, And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this, this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? And we understood that as we looked at that verse, who is able to stand before, before this holy Lord God, that we were talking about what happened when the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive by the Philistines, had been returned to Beth Shemesh. The Levites had met and received the Ark of the Covenant. And then the men of Beth Shemesh looked into it and 50,000 died. They ask the question, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? After that event, and 50,000 died. I want you to try to understand something. The question that's in that verse, who is able to stand before a holy God? Now, they also put in Lord. Ruler, supreme one. He's Lord, Lord God. Who is able to stand? What human being, okay, can stand before a holy God? They saw what had happened to the, they knew what had happened to the Philistines by now. And they also saw what happened when they looked into this ark and 50,000 died. And they were scared out of their minds. Everybody's really tough up until the point where they get sick or hungry or tired. But then when people start dying, your strength and your courage begins to wane. When God fully reveals himself like he did there in a, in a move of revealing his, just his, his presence in a way of what we might call of punishment. They did not respect. They did not approach God. With a spirit of reverence. They were curious. And they, and they taught. They treated him little more than just a, 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 a trinket. And they, and they treated the Ark of the Covenant. Which was his presence. A symbol of his presence. As a trinket. Something to invoke. To help them get out of a bind. And so this question has just been. Just been astonishing to me. Who is able to stand? And when I think about it, here I am, uh, 2023, um, all the modern conveniences of a modern world, um, well fed, and, and I'm, um, I've got clean water, and I've got medicine if I need it, and uh, I don't really, you know, I can get warm pretty quick. I don't have to build a fire, okay? Uh, and I can get cool if I want to, just turn on the switch. There and your air conditioner can cool you. Um, I, everything seems to be pretty easy. How quickly we forget, and I think about how fragile we are, how fragile I am, just as a human being. Um, you can make the the meanest, strongest man in the world a little child if you just stub his toe at night when he gets up. Okay, he's going down, or put a Lego in the floor and he's disabled. Okay, I mean it's. It, 
we are brought low very easy. So when we're talking about who is able to stand before this holy Lord God, I, I, the question just kept rever, reverberating, reverberating in my mind. And so the, I found the answer. It's in Isaiah chapter 57 and 15. So in honor of God and his word, let's stand and we'll read this together. And then I'll develop this today. So who's able to stand before this holy Lord God? Who's able to do that? Well, in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, it says, For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity. Notice it didn't say inhabit heaven. It said who inhabits eternity. <laughs> okay. Whose name is holy. Here's what he said. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. And then he goes on to say, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And notice I just took the liberty of putting some marks up here. He says, I dwell with him who is. So who is able to stand before God? The ones that have the contrite and humble spirit. That's who God says he will dwell with. And we'll see this developed here. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word and we dive deeper, please grant us the grace to understand that you are holy preeminently. You, you inhabit not just heaven, but you inhabit eternity. You're timeless. You are so far above us, you use the words like lofty and high. And here we are, specks of flesh on the earth. Who are we that you would reveal yourself to us? And who are we that you would give your son to die for us? But you did. So God, help us as your people. To really try and understand and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Let us just leave with a small understanding, if nothing else, of how mighty and holy you are. And how we are to stand before you. In Jesus name. Amen. You can be seated. I dwell. God says. With him. That's personal. Isn't it? I dwell with him. Brian dwells, dwells with Lorena. And then of course. If he messes up. He dwells alone. Okay. Uh, and if you're a husband. You know what I mean. Uh, God says he, he dwells not with everybody. It's exclusive, this description about who God dwells with. Right there is a, a verse against universalism. Right there. I dwell in the high and holy place. Now, that's descriptive of also where he places us who are his. In theology, we have what's known as the now and the not yet. Okay? Are the already, but not yet. And this is the in-between of that exceeding great work of redemption that God is working out in his people, whereby we are saved, we're being saved, we will be saved, or if we could go back, we are justified, we are regenerated, we are being sanctified, 
and on to the glorification that will come. It's just sure as done, if you remember out of Romans. It's, it, it's a proleptic verb, remember, that it's just, it just, we talk about it being finished because in God's economy, it is. And, and that's where God places us in this high and holy place in Christ, right? But there's characteristics of those who dwell there. There's two words. Contrite and humble. You don't dwell in the holy place of God with pride. You don't approach his throne on your terms. So I I look at this and the more I look at it, the more enamored I am with it because it just makes me realize just how wonderful this story of salvation is. And I think about those people whom we would call false converts, which the world is full. I thought I had a friend this morning I was thinking about. He's actually saying at this church before, but but it was before it was even established. Travis, you remember the tent thing we had? Years ago, it was the first event we had. There was a trailer and there was a group saying, the man that sang, apostate. Now, he left the Lord, he left his wife, he left his children behind. And is still going that direction as far as I know. He preached. He taught. He led. They traveled the country singing gospel. There's no, the last I heard, there's no, there's no contriteness, there's no humility. These kind of stories are going to become more pronounced as time goes, see? Because the squeeze is being put on us now. You may not realize it, but in cattle, when, you, when, you're, when you're gathering cattle, sometimes you have to build a wing, a very large wing, to get them into the main gate of the main corral. Because there's a lot of what I call high heads out generally they're bramer in origin okay and they can recognize what's happening they're pretty smart and they'll lead a lot of them off and away and they'll go through the fence before they'll go in the crowd so you build a very large wing that just sets off at a 45 or whatever you want to put out and and it and you have to build it big enough that by the time they're headed into it you've got your wingmen gathering in and they're they can't escape you see, for them, it was too late. As soon as they, I, as soon as they spotted it, it was too late. They were, they were being funneled in. And, and what's happening in our world and what's shaping up right now in, in the Western nations and in, in American Christianity is these, these, th- these pressures that have always existed. You know, those who forget history are bound to what? Repeat it. So these things are happening and God is, is setting up His church to own the message they preach. We're in the wing. It's, it's, he's pulling us in. Soon we'll be in the main corral. And then we'll be headed down the chute. And that chute is where our faith will shine. God says, I dwell with him who knows who he is, who knows who she is. Who are broken. Who need me. 
who depend upon me. This is a very huge verse. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Now, I, I used verses 16 through 18 simply to bring it together in context, but the admonition is, as God's people, okay, if you know Christ, and I mean genuinely know Him, I, I don't care about your head knowledge. I'm glad if you could quote all the books of the Bible. I'm so impressed that you can even go through the begots and not miss one. But I don't care if you can begot the begots. If you ain't got Christ, you don't have anything. So do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. In other words, don't hitch yourself to the world of lostness. If you have an appetite for that, question yourself. Where is your allegiance? For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with the devil? Well, you you do not have to be an astute theologian to understand that the devil and Jesus aren't going to go to Sonic and have a burger. That's putting it lightly, but you get the idea. They don't walk together. The Christian who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God Almighty does not walk with the world. They walk against it. Because they walk for the kingdom. When you flirt with the world, be careful. Because the wedding may come upon you soon. And the children that you will bear will be monsters. There will be no distinction. There will be nothing but syncretism of belief systems. And God will have shrunk from His high and holy place in your mind to just someone else whom maybe you can manipulate to get some help out of when you need Him. And that is blasphemy. What relationship or accord has Christ with Blaler? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? Do you get what he's saying here? He said it all these ways. But what he's saying is you do not align yourself with those who do not know Christ. In relationships? No. Look, if you're looking for a husband or a wife, the dating relationship is not the place to be missional. It's the place to find, is God put you in my life to be my helpmate? My, my, you were, we were made for each other. We're going to go through life together. Instead of spending our time trying to get one of us saved, then we spend our, our dating life saying, how are we going to point our ship towards a greater trajectory into God's best for us? How are we going to take your gifts and my gifts and our our shared passion for Jesus and go towards the cross because I'll tell you, you can't have that conversation with someone who you're trying to marry that doesn't know Christ. And I promise you this, that you, they won't go your way. You're going to go theirs. I think the counts for business relationships too. There's a lot of places that this counts. But he says... What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Again, you get the contrast here. What's the contrast? Light, darkness. Don't say you love Jesus if you love the world. 
Don't say that you live for Christ if all you do is reveal darkness in your soul. When Jesus saves a person, he sets them free. We went through Romans, remember, not too long back. That old man has been buried. The new man is being regenerated day by day, renewed day by day. You have a greater appetite for heavenly things day by day by day. And then he says, you are the temple of the living God. So if you go back to Isaiah 57, 15, and you bring that forward into the New Testament, where does God dwell in this high and lofty place? Where does this Godhead live? When you're in Christ, he lives here. So then you can see how grievous a sin it is whenever we take this purchased possession this place where God the holy Lord God and we willfully go into sin here's how to know if you're a saint you do not stay there you cannot stay there no you cannot and you won't well God has said this, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, this is what God says, come out from among them. What's the admonition here? Just what it says next, be separate, says the Lord, be be distinct. And and I'll just go go ahead and add, be holy. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty, because that's where you stand with God whenever you realize who you are before Him. Today, we go out and we share this message with people on their doorsteps, and I got to tell you about it. It's about as comfortable as sitting on a cactus. Do I enjoy it? No, not really. Well, kind of. I'm all over. I don't go because of how I feel about it. I go because I understand that I have a mandate to share the gospel with people. And I go because I realize and understand that when I put this word into their hearts, when they, when they listen, that <laughs> I've done what I was called to do. And I believe that it has the power to save when God is ready to do so. It's up to Him. He doesn't call me to to convert. Thank God for that. He calls me to tell. But the other thing is, I remember as I'm standing on that porch, I remember verses like this, I dwell in. I don't walk alone. We don't walk alone. When you're before your boss and you're getting raked over the coals for something you didn't do or something outside of your control because, you know, corporate mentality is completely bankrupt, okay, just remember, you're not standing there by yourself. God is with you. He dwells with the humble and the contrite. 
You're not alone. Should they come and arrest you and put you in a jail? You're not alone. If you're in Christ, you will never be alone again. Ever. Well, I look back at this verse again. I dwell with him who is contrite and humble. Contrite means to crush or beat something into small pieces. (laughs) How do you feel like that when you come to Jesus, don't you? A person who expresses sorrow or pain over sin. I can't tell you how many times I've had people try to convince me that they know Jesus. It's shocking the way they tell me their testimony. When the amount of arrogance and pride exudes from it. All they've done to help God out since they've been saved. And how when they came, people were blessed by them. And it was clear to see that their testimony is really a narcissistic attempt to try to subjugate God to their whim. No, I've heard other testimonies. The real ones, you know. So tell me when you're saved. And when, you're, when you serve, you know, elders listen to testimonies. When they get to that part, man, that's the beautiful stuff. There's always a brokenness. A brokenness. Well, I reached the end. I had nothing left. I was fighting everything. And then God just broke me. Or, it was over a period of time, I went from not believing to being gripped with His grace. And I believe, and they are so strong. There's a change happened. But they don't exhibit pride. No. They can't, you can't, the, the earmarks of a Christian are not pride and arrogance. It's crushedness. It's being ground into small pieces. The next word is humble. It just means a low status person. <laughs> a person of low or inferior status. Yes. I would rather wash the sidewalks in the kingdom than to walk the sidewalks of the kingdom of this world. Humble, contrite. So let's go back then with this in mind. 1 Samuel 6.20 And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? And what they mean by stand is to hold one's ground or to maintain a position. To be steadfast. They realized they couldn't hold their ground. They couldn't maintain their position. What was their problem? Idolatry was their problem. But what was their greater problem? Pride. The very opposite of humility. What was their other problem? They weren't ground to pieces like they thought they were. They got their ark back. They were on top of the world. Right? The problem of the men of Beth Shemesh was they did not fear God. They worshipped themselves. And all they wanted to do was gratify their own needs. So they looked into the ark. 
And that's how people treat God today. So who's able to stand before this holy Lord God? Not those living in pride. Not those, not those who aren't broken. You've got to have a covering to stand, actually. Look at this. Standing before God requires covering or cleansing. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. So if you will, let's go back to the beginning. And at, in Genesis chapter 3, we know the story. Satan tempted Eve. She ate and she gave to her husband. and He did eat also. And then, of course, they found out, they realized they were naked and they hid themselves. And then God came walking in the garden for fellowship and He couldn't find them. Find. God knows everything. This is for our benefit, not His. And they could not approach Him because they were naked and ashamed. They were afraid. And so in verse... 21 of chapter 3, it said, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And again, if you read in 2.25, it says they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed, so something had happened. Before, they had not a stitch of clothing and they were walking with God before sinners, and, and they had confidence before God because they didn't need a covering. They were innocent. But then sin came in and now they are ashamed. They still didn't have a stitch of clothing. But now they're ashamed. Why? Because they need a covering. Sin cannot stand naked before God and live. They needed to be covered. Well, God did so. He made tunics of skin and clothed them. And you think, well, where does that go? In Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Now we skipped ahead to Leviticus. Okay. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd and of the flock. And this is for a sin offering. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. But notice in the green. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf. And notice the word to make atonement, which simply means to cover. You have to be covered before God with sinlessness to stand in His presence. You follow that? You have to be perfect. What are we going to do? So, Leviticus chapter 4.20, And He shall do with the bull as He did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus He shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them. And it shall be forgiven them. Again, that blood applied covers sin. And the word for atonement is kafar, and it simply means to cover or pacify or to make propitiation, appease. Do you realize the word appeasement is to 
soothe or take away the, 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 the anger, the animosity, the, mm, the difficulty. I, I don't have the word that God sees when he sees sin. He has to be appeased. It has to be covered. So Hebrews 9.22 And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There can be no forgiveness. Again, atonement means covering. Covering equals cleansing. No covering. No cleansing. You cannot have a Christless salvation. Zechariah chapter 3 then. Verses 1 through 5 in one of Zechariah's visions. says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him because that's what the devil does. And the Lord said to Satan, Now notice this, The Lord rebuke you. Satan, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Notice how he did say, I rebuke you or I bind you. That's the kind of stuff that charismatics teach, and that's just false. The Lord rebuke you. So, should you ever run into a demon, do not even think for a second to say, I bind you. Who are you? Better to say, the Lord rebuke you. Jesus rebuke you. God Almighty rebuke you. And so the Satan asks, or Jesus, or the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Now notice this imagery. And he was standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Now guess what he said? See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. And they put clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Devil's trying to condemn. What does Jesus do for us? He atones. He intercedes. He covers. If you, if you, if you actually, if we had time to go to Matthew 22, it would simply be the parable of the wedding uh, uh, ceremony. And in which case... There was a man who got in there without a wedding garment. And he was spotted. And guess what happened to him? He was thrown into outer darkness. In Isaiah 6, 1-7, it's the last of our lengthy text to demonstrate this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, this is Isaiah's response, Woe is me, for I am undone. And again, I know I've said it once, I'll, say it, I'll keep saying it. He was literally dissolving in his very cells coming apart. 
Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Can you imagine? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his, in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And notice what it says. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. He had to have a covering. He had to be cleansed. He was dying. Who will able, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Those who are covered. Those who are cleansed. Well, well, who's that? Who's that? Those who have a contrite and humble spirit. Look, if you're here, And you don't know Jesus. I want to say something to you. I'm so glad you come to church. You need to be here. You need to hear the word of God preached. But it's not enough. You must believe. In God's covering for you. You must yield. You must surrender. You must repent of your wickedness. Your very arrogance of your heart. And be saved. From God's wrath upon you. And cling to the one who can. And that's Jesus. Your covering. There's no room for your pride. Your insolence. There's no room for your arrogance. There's no room at the cross. For the proud. And the arrogant. Just the humble. Just the broken. Charles Spurgeon said, A faith which works not for purification will work for putrefaction. Unless our faith makes us pine after holiness, it is no better than the faith of the devils. And perhaps it is not even so good as that. You know why I think he said that? Because the Bible says that even the demons believe, but they tremble. There are men and women in our world today that say all kinds of heinous things about God Almighty. And they don't realize that they are literally suspended. As Jonathan Edwards preached, by a very thin spider's web over the precipice of hell. As the flames lick their toes of their soul. And it's only by God's grace they are not dropped to go there for all eternity. One more day. One more preaching the gospel to them. A holy man is the workmanship of the Holy Spirit. Church, who will able to stand before our holy God? I don't care about programs much. Trying to grow the church is fine, but I don't care about how many people sit in the seats. I used to. It's very shallow, low fruit. What I want. What I long to see. is people on their knees. A brokenness. A desperation that spreads as though someone was Crying in another and another and another because God was moving in such 
severity upon us in grace and renewal of the Holy Spirit in us. To me, that's, that's where that is. And then the hardest heart you can imagine that you've prayed for, that you've reached out to, saying, I need Jesus. He's shown me my, my, myself and I need Him. Music can't bring that. Different programs, it doesn't bring that. God brings that. Brokenness. Brokenness is attractive to God. So with that being said, let's enter into a time of prayer. And let's ask God to bring that. To bring that to not only to us, but to the churches in the entire Magic Valley. And that an awakening would start from it as lost friends and family begin to notice what God is doing in our life. Let's pray that way. Let's ask God to do what only God can do.